0: What's up, guys? Thank you for joining us today on week four of XCS Podcast. Uh, Without further ado, let's jump right into it. So first topic today, Gavin, Giannis wins All-Star MVP. He shot 16 of 16, a perfect game for him. He was out there balling, dominating. He even made a couple three-pointers. What did you think of Giannis' performance? I know it was fun to watch for me.
1: Well, the All-Star game, despite what we talked about last week, how we wanted it to live up to the hype and maybe have a bit more oomph and effort up and down the court. Um, You know, it it was like it was in previous years. It was pretty pretty tame. There was just – my brother put it – what I think was the best way to put it was he said it's just a bunch of guys balling at the gym with an insane amount of talent. (laughs) They don't miss shots and they can dunk. Um, But you know what? 16 for 16 is pretty remarkable, so I'll give him that. That guy, uh, he put it all out there, and it was definitely fun to watch. For me, I, I had more fun watching the three-point co- uh, competition because I think that is a better showcase of talent than what the All-Star game is because these guys are they're repping themselves. So They're going to try a bit harder rather than the All-Star game is just a bunch of guys out there balling around, you know. But, um, you know, Giannis putting up, those, putting up those points and not missing a shot – I think that shows that he's um, he's the next generation. Maybe uh, maybe um the the replacement for LeBron.
0: Yeah, uh, I I agree. I think that he just he went out there and he was balling. Of course, he was just dunking a lot, so easy to make a lot of those high percentage shots. But he made three three pointers. It was pretty exciting. Uh, he did great, and I loved watching Curry and Dame have their little kind of three-point face-off during the game. They were out there shooting from half court, making shots. LeBron was throwing the ball to Curry, and Curry was just draining it from 10 feet behind the three-point line. It was pretty crazy. But, yeah, it was really exciting to watch. You had a lot of guys out there um, going and balling, having a lot of fun. I think it was actually pretty exciting this year, better than I expected it to be at least. And there was a little bit of defense played. Of course, it was light. No one was out there trying to get injured. But there was a lot of really exciting um, playing going on I thought it was funny to see Rudy Gobert go out there And Rudy Gobert is a great player but he just didn't really match up with all those other all-stars that were out there being so agile and quick and everything and he was just kind of like a cinder block slowly moving down the court trying to catch an alley-oop and everything so that was funny to watch but no it was definitely an exciting game uh, not ton to talk about but it was just a good game everyone out there showing their talent of course, LeBron kind of took a backseat, let everyone else do their thing. But yeah. we knew Team LeBron was going to go out there and win it. We talked about it last week. Team LeBron was the the clear favorite, and they did great. But then moving on to the three-point contest that you mentioned, it was really exciting to watch this year. Curry won, of course, uh, first time since 2015 when he won before. What did you think about the three-point contest? I thought it was really exciting.
1: Yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I, th- I thought it was cool to see guys like Zach Levine, and mike conley these guys who aren't always you know given the same kind of respect that um guys like dame and curry are when shoot from beyond the arc um mike conley was in the finals right and he um he gave curry a run for his money he put up i think 27 and um but no i like you watch curry's first round and i thought that was beautiful to watch he just how fluid he was. He missed the first couple shots and he missed like maybe two shots the rest of the way, just draining them every single time. And you'd watch straight from the release. There was no question that it was going in like every single time. And it was absolutely ridiculous. And that's why I love three competition because it showcases the talent. And even near the end, because Curry missed like his first like four shots in, uh, in, the, in the final round. Um, that when these guys turn on the Jets, that that they, they don't miss. When they get in the zone, when they get locked in, the pressure's on, who's going to make the shot? and Who's going to miss the shot? And I just thought it was unreal to see Steph go down there and do his thing and basically just show everybody up. And I forget who was talking about it in the in, in the sports cast, the broadcast. I, I forget who was talking about it, but he was like, they're playing for second place. Like, Steph, Steph is – Steph's winning no matter what, right? So um I don't know. If that's that that's my take. I just love to watch Steph when he when he's shooting. It's a beautiful thing. And I, I, I totally agree. It was Steph's contest to lose.
0: I yes, I agree with that. I think it was super exciting. I was wondering if there was gonna be an underdog that could come in there and knock Steph off. I was not expecting Mike Conley to do as he as good as he did. I was really excited to see him go out there and ball and make some really good shots. Um, I did miss a little bit of little bit of that Clay Thompson Steph Curry kind of rivalry with Clay Thompson being in the three point contest wasn't in it of course this year being out with injury but in past years it's been really fun to see Clay Thompson even knocked out Curry a couple times so it was always fun to see that but no I think it was a great three point contest it was nice to see some of those young guys Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in there making good shots like you mentioned Zach Levine out there balling so I think it was a great mixture of older players like. Damian Damon Curry that just have their great reputation, phenomenal players, Mike Conley getting a chance, and then some of those younger guys that could come in there and prove themselves. So it was a really good competition. And then moving on to some other big NBA news, um, one of the biggest topics around the NBA right now, Blake Griffin going to the Nets. Of course, the Nets are already a stacked team. I mean, Harden, Kyrie, we talked about it last week um, that Blake Griffin was considering going to the Nets, but it actually officially happened. How much do you think this will help um, boost their team offense and defense? What does this help them look like, and does it help them make a greater championship push?
1: Well, you look at Blake, and I—what did you say that he that he thought that Brooklyn was looking for a four man? And I kind of agree. They had the they had the big three, and then they added another blockbuster name to that lineup. Yeah, Blake's not the same guy he once was. But you look at this team, and this is a—if you take the best years of each of these players on in that lineup. Like that's, that's a pretty good team. And I think that this adds a lot of um, character and um, motivation for the rest of the season, because if you have the big three and and KD and Harden and Kyrie, it's kind of like it's these three guys versus the league. but you got DJ there and you got Blake. And so it's kind of like they're building a team that all has common interests. They're relatable to each other. And it's going to feel more like a team when you have guys like DJ and guys like Blake as the supporting, the supporting cast, if you will, for the big three, it's not just these three guys versus the world. It's you got guys who were all MVP caliber players at certain points in their own career um, playing on the court together cohesively. And I think that's going to make for, um, a much harder team to play against come playoff time. You're playing against some hardened vets, <laughs> Hard, hardened vets, uh, not just James Harden, but hardened veterans who have a lot of experience, um, a lot of drive and a lot of passion and, um, they're getting paid. So, um, they're going to be dangerous and fun to watch.
0: No, I, I completely agree with you there. I think it's it's crazy. Like, I mean, five years ago, if you said that you had Kyrie, Harden, Durant, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, all of these guys on the same team, that's crazy, right? I mean, super teams existed back then. We had the Warriors and everything. But I think this is a whole nother level, right? When you have guys like DeAndre Jordan, maybe even Blake Griffin, Joe Harris, Jeff Green coming off the bench to an in, in offense to a team with Durant, Harden, they've been winning – dozens of games lately without Durant. Durant hasn't played in a long time, and yet they're the number two seed. They're balling. It's like they don't even need him. Uh, I think the only thing that could really mess this team up is if they start to kind of have a little bit of um, jealousy in the locker room, a little bit of butting heads. It happened with the Warriors, with Durant. We already knew that happened, and we know with Kyrie's personality, uh, it it could be a cause for some trouble. I think Harden might be okay, but who knows? I mean, he's always had the spotlight, and now playing with a guy like Durant and Kyrie, who's going to take a lot of the spotlight away, it just might not work as well. But I think the addition of Blake Griffin was beautiful. I think even though he's a lot slower, a lot weaker, not nearly the threat he once was, he's still very smart. He's still developed a game mentally. So I think his basketball IQ is going to be great. It's going to contribute a lot to the team. And then when you have a young coach like Steve Nash, but someone who is a brilliant, brilliant basketball yeah. mind, I think that'll help a lot. So, again, like I was saying, I think the only thing that can slow this team down is themselves. I don't know if even LeBron and Anthony Davis could necessarily stop them, but who knows what it'll be like come playoff times when you got to have some clutch situations and you got to have good team yeah,
1: you're Right? And the characters, like this guy is getting his number retired in Houston and he's still playing in the league, right? Or like this team, he left and it kind of felt like it was a bit there was a lot of animosity there between the head the front office and James Harden. And it didn't seem like they were gelling quite the same as they once, they once were. And now they're retiring his number (laughs) and he's still playing in the league for a different team that for a lot of people and a lot of fans, it felt like he just abandoned the city. I don't know. I just think that's crazy. I don't think we've ever seen somebody have their number retired while they are still playing. And especially for another team. Like, that's ridiculous in my mind. He's not even retired yet. His career's not even over. He's still, um, like, you know, he's still in some of the best years of his playing career. And they're retiring his number.
0: No, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's hilarious. Like, what happens if he ends up maybe end of his career going back to Houston? Does he get that number back? Right? I just think that's a whole funny uh, concept. But, no, you're right. He's still balling. He's definitely got a good amount of years left in him. He's still young enough. He wants to go out there and win some championships. But, yeah, that that Nets team's looking scary. But moving on to some some football news, of course, Dak Prescott just got that huge contract, four years, at least $160 million. Do you think it was worth it for the Cowboys? I mean, I think that players are getting a little bit overpaid these days. I don't know if, as a GM, I would be comfortable paying that kind of money to someone who hasn't fully proved himself yet. Of course, Dak has proved that he has all the talent in the world and that he can play with the best of them. But he hasn't proved that he can win games like Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers. So I don't know if I'd be willing to drop all this money on this guy, especially a guy coming off of a serious season-ending injury. But what do you think about it? Do you think that it can be worth it? And what do you think those implications are for the rest of the league and
1: for the Cowboys? Well, so if you think about it from a year-to-year basis, um, we're talking about the salary cap is, what, 182? this year 40 million of that 180 is Dak Prescott's right so that leaves 140 million dollars left for the Cowboys to fill an entire roster they only have 140 million dollars for this season to fill an entire roster of players like that's huge and I, I saw a meme on uh, on Twitter and I thought it was hilarious that um the Cowboys just locked down four more consecutive years of losing when Dak signed his contract and I'm and I was just like well uh, I I hope that's not true because we know that Dak is full of talent but like you said he hasn't really proven that he's a winner he can't really get that the W for for the D Uh, in Dallas they, they they have not been able to put together some some consistent winning winning seasons and they're not a team without talent they never have been, right? Especially you got Zeke and Prescott, two of the most two like you could argue, like they're in that conversation for two most talented p- position players in the league, and they're not winning games. And you can say, well, yeah, they don't have a receiving core, or maybe their 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 uh, secondary isn't the greatest. But what what's the difference? You're paying these guys so much money. We see other guys around the league, other guys in the same positions where it's taking pay cuts so that they can build teams around them, right? I I, I feel like at this point in your career, money is just money. Like it's there, it's always going to be there. For the rest of your life, you're getting paid all this money. Like for me, if I were in that situation, what's the difference between 20 million and 40 million? Like seriously, like how is that going to change your life? Like, is it really? I don't think so. And that's my kind of thing is why not sacrifice not even, not even like 10% of your contract so that they can get some good quality players to put around you. Like Dak can't complain that they're throwing the ball to, that he doesn't ever want to throw the ball to when he's eating up like 20%, 30% of their cap space. It's so, I don't know. I think that's a huge hit to their, to, to their organization because, especially in a market that's been hurt severely by COVID. Like, I don't know. It's going to be very hard to build a team around number four.
0: No, I completely, I, I see that point of view. And I think it's funny that you mentioned that he's taken up so much money and that he's making 40 mil instead of maybe 20 mil it's taken away from so many other players. Because what did we see that, Tom Brady did the other day. He's taking pay cuts, right? He's, he's giving back money to the organization so that they can go out and get better players. And who's the richest player in the league? Tom Brady, right? I mean, he's making so much money outside of the league that what he's doing, his money in the league doesn't even compare to it, right? So I think that these players, they're all so money hungry. They want to go after these huge contracts. And we saw Le'Veon Bell, he left the Steelers because they kept franchise tagging him. He wanted to go make more money. And now he's a, he's a nobody in the league, right? He's not even a starter. I mean, everyone knows his name. Everyone knows that he has a ton of talent, but he was playing for a team in the Super Bowl and he contributed very little to them. Right. So I think a guy like Tom Brady sees my legacy matters more than the money I'm going to make. And my legacy will contribute to more money outside of the, off the field. So you get a guy like Dak Prescott, he might be making $40 million during the season but he might not be making as much because he's not going to win any super bowls. His name's not going to be out there with the greats like Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, some of these other dudes that can actually go out there and win. So I think that taking a pay cut or at least not signing a huge contract and going out and getting other big names is better for you in the long run because it's going to build your legacy, it's going to help your chance and or help your organization win and from there you can build your name, you can build your legacy. And you can just grow everything about you. You can grow your own brand. And that's really what it's all about for these guys in the end. Because we see far too many guys that kind of fall off out of the league because their name wasn't big enough, even though they were making all the money in the world. And I think it's crazy to see someone like Dak take that much money. I mean, we've seen other guys. Brock Osweiler, look what he's been able to do when he took all of that money and then just completely fell off the map. I think that these organizations need to be careful who they're paying this much money. And these players, too, of course, it's very tempting to take this amount of money, but you got to look at what is no, the money. Yeah,
1: and this reminds me, this conversation reminds me of Cap. Like, Kaepernick, well, not even necessarily his career in the NFL and how much money he was making, but post his career with the whole movement that he was running. Um, and everyone was talking about the sacrifice he was making because he'll never be able to play in the NFL again. I'm like, he wasn't in the NFL because he was standing up for that issue. He wasn't good enough at the time, and that's why he wasn't playing. And he was ended up getting paid more money by Nike during that whole movement than he did in the NFL. So this conversation about money and everything, it's just ridiculous in my mind because you're making so much that why not use it? think of it as an investment for your own self and your your team because even if you're looking up for yourself don't you want to win when guys sign these big contracts i question how much they love football and how much they want to win a super bowl because it's very hard to to get paid that much money and pay somebody else who's worth you know obviously not as much as you but Um, a fair amount of money, and put together a winning team. That's why Tampa Bay was so good. You mentioned it, Tom Brady. These guys are top players who weren't getting paid necessarily how much they deserve, whatever you want to call deserving, in the National Football League, and they were still able to hold on to guys like Godwin, right? So, I don't know. Like At some point, I think it's got to be the question of, you got money, or more money? And if money in winning is is different than more money in losing, why not take just a little bit less money and win some more football games with some better players around you?
0: Yeah, that that's an uh, amazing point that you are making. And I mean kind of along that topic of um, giving other players money, giving the organization uh, more cap space to spend on players and stuff. How much influence do you think a quarterback has to winning championships versus maybe a defense? Do you think that when a guy like Tom Brady is saying, no, take 5 10 mil away from me and spend it on other of the, these guys, some of these free agents that can go out and help us winning, do you think that maybe defense wins championships or do you think that in the end it truly is the quarterback
1: and maybe a little bit of the players well, around Well, I think to have this conversation, you have to take Tom Brady out of the conversation because that guy's an outlier. In every case, outlier, he wins. Don't care. Um, But uh, to me, it was evident. We were watching Kansas City. Their defense didn't play great. And Pat didn't... Yeah, Pat didn't have the greatest game of his life. But also, he didn't have the ball for nearly as much time that that Tom did. And to me, it's because their defense was on the field so much longer. And it's because they couldn't stop. Yeah, they have... That was one of the greatest... um, Offensive, like, they, they had some absolute weapons on that Tampa Bay team, but they couldn't get a stop not with the run game or the pass. And um, I, I think, aside from when Tom Brady's on offense, defense does win championships. You look at it in Denver, when Peyton won, Peyton wasn't necessarily at the top of his career. Like, he wasn't at his best. He wasn't in, in his prime. And because, to me, I think those years were, were well-spent, in Indianapolis for some great and some terrible teams but when he came to Denver that was an unbelievable defense Von Miller had a career year, and that's why they won the Super Bowl I don't think it had anything to do with um, with, um, with with the quarterback yeah it, it so and I, I should rephrase that because Peyton is an all-timer but th- at that point in that game, the defense was way more important than Peyton Manning was.
0: No, I, I see that completely. And, I mean, even if we're looking at Tom Brady winning all the Super Bowls in the world, but look at the, um, two, the first two Super Bowls he lost against the Giants. The Giants held him to just 14 in 2008, and they won 17-14, to low-scoring game. It was all about the defense. They won because Michael Strahan and that beastly Giants defense was able to put pressure on him, shut the receivers down, they were able to blitz, play man coverage, play a little bit of zone. They had their way with an amazing Patriots offense. That offense that year was one of the greatest offenses of all time. What happened in 2012? We see it again. They they scored 17 points. Giants beat them 21 17. And again, Eli Manning, who is so far less talented and less renowned than Tom Brady, like not even in the same conversation, he was able to beat Tom Brady twice because the defense came out and they. Played tough, they played strong, they put pressure on Brady. And of course, another Super Bowl that Tom Brady actually did win against the Rams, 13 to 3. What kind of a game is that, right? He held the Ram the sorry, the Patriots held the Rams offense to just three points. And that year, that was one of the best offenses in the league. They had all the talent in the world. Of course, not a phenomenal quarterback, but Jared Goff got it done during the regular season in the first couple of playoff games. So I think that we see that in the end, defense really does win championships and although a quarterback is the most influential individual position, defense as a whole is so important, and Patrick Mahomes, as great as he is, couldn't even do anything going against that uh, strong pass rush he had to face in the Super Bowl this year. He barely got it done against the 49ers' great defense. He threw a couple interceptions, um, struggled a little bit in that game because he was going up against such a great defense, but he was able to get it done there. But I think that individually, of course, quarterbacks – most important position, give him the majority of the money. Um, But in the end, you got to have plenty of money to go around for these other players. You got to give him a line. You got to give him a defense. Um, D line is so important. You got to be able to put pressure on a quarterback. And of course, I just think that defense has become a little bit underrepresented and underrated in these current years because it's so important to winning games but instead we're just looking at these guys dropping 30 40 points. Yeah,
1: for sure. And I feel like this conversation especially when you look at that Super Bowl, when I watched that Super Bowl, I thought that was one of the best game management Super Bowls I've ever I've ever seen. That that offense was managed so well start to finish. Whether you want us for which Super this, Bowl is this This way? past year Super Bowl with with, this with, past with, Bowl, with right? Tom whether you want to say that Tom was calling the plays or Arians was or Arians was calling the plays, I don't care. I thought that was some beautiful play calling um, because, the, like like we're talking about, the defense was absolutely like out to lunch. They 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 didn't know what to throw at them. They didn't know when to blitz. They didn't. They, they just had nothing. They 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 had nothing to throw back at, at that offense, and I thought they blended. The run game and the pass game extremely well, because Tom, he threw quite a few picks this year, um, and but he's still Tom Brady. So you're going into the game and you're thinking, man, Super Bowl, Tom Brady. We got, we can't let this guy throw touchdowns. We got, we got, we got to play D. And then they didn't have the best run game. They had some talent for. You got Fournette and Jones, and those are definitely some talented guys. But it's not, they're not huge names, right? They're not massive names with massive contracts so this kind of thing i thought that they led with passing 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 and then they would run the ball and jones would just rush nine yards 10 yards 11 yards or even three or four just beating them down beating them down beating them all game and i think that that's why they were so successful because they ran first through second and they were totally defenseless (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of fun.
0: Right. No, I I see that. And I, I love how you mentioned how they were able to run the ball effectively and kind of just be aggressive that way. Um, nowadays, we're seeing that running backs and the running game in general is becoming so much less of a factor in the game. A lot of running backs, even Fournette and Jones this year, were getting paid very little money, but yet they were still highly effective and on the Super Bowl winning team, of course. How much do you think that running backs in the running game is important, maybe kind of like a percentage or a ratio com- compared to passing game. Because, of course, back in the day, I mean, running game was so influential. You had guys like Barry Sanders and Emmitt Smith, and they were the offense. I mean, you had Troy Aikman with Emmitt Smith, which helped Emmitt Smith a lot because it spread out everything. But they were, they were the, the head of the team, the, the face of the team, I should say. And they were so influential. Even I mean, going back just a couple of years ago with Adrian Peterson running for over two thousand yards. Derrick Henry ran for two thousand yards this year. But it seems like the running game is becoming less important, less talked about, and it's having less of an influence on the game. What do you think maybe what do you think of that factor between the running and passing game?
1: Well, I think like you're like you're saying, it's definitely toning down a bit, and I kind of don't like to see it because when I watch guys, you look at the history books and you watch guys like Walter Payton power through that line, power through that line. And he's rumbling for yards and he's only like probably three inches off the ground, just driving his knees, pushing for your extra yardage. Right. I think that's some beautiful. That is just raw strength, perseverance and motivation to, to win. Right. And I feel like it's more of a design game or, uh, architectural when we're when we're throwing the ball right strategy yeah, and I,
0: trying to find the right groove trying to find the positions to get people open rather than just power and um trying to be better than the yeah that's party. why
1: i i'm not a big derrick henry fan but man i love to watch the guy play because he is kind of that walter payton kind of guy who's rumbling through not a big skill player not a big jump cuts you're not really going to see henry do that but he will power through and push through those holes, and he doesn't necessarily always need a block, right? So, um, for me, I wish that we still saw run, 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 pass. That's why Brady won this Super Bowl because they they pushed through and ran for a lot more than what um, than what Kansas City was expecting. I think if you can even have a guy who consistently run for three to four yards that you are going to be in a perfect position to win football games because thing with that, you're first down and you're looking at second and seven instead of a, like second and seven was a lot different than second and eight because second and seven, you can run the ball once more and you've got a third and short, but second and eight, you run the ball and you're still looking at third and long, right? If you can have a guy who can rumble and tumble for three to four yards, every play, I don't think you, you, you would lose very many games and that is, imagine a defense getting rumbled and beat down with three to four yard gains every time. And then all of a sudden you see a quarterback drop back. I don't even think it matters who your quarterback is at that point. If you've run two run plays that are actually wearing the defense down, whoever the quarterback is dropping back, they are going to be seeing wide open receivers because everyone's going to be coming down. They do not want to let them, beat down because they're going to get tired and they're going to want to they're going to collapse and come on themselves so I think the run game is huge I wish it played a bigger role than it did because defenses collapse if you've got a good running back
0: well I think what we saw with a couple teams this year the Chiefs being one of them is that when you don't have a running game and you have to rely on the pass, teams can just adjust to that especially over time I mean after eight, nine, ten weeks going into the playoffs. Good teams with good coaches will recognize that. They're going to see it on film. They're not going to put nearly as much pressure on the run. They're going to throw pass blitzes at you. They're going to have the right coverages in place. And if you can't run when the defense is spreading their DBs out and trying to cover the pass, then you're not going to be able to get it done. We saw the same thing with the Steelers. They could not run this year. They were 11-0 to start the season, on top of the world, one of the best teams in the league. But, I mean, when you got guys that can only run for 20, 30 yards a game and you can't get anybody over 100 yards and then Big Ben has to throw for 55 times, 60 times in a game and he's throwing a couple picks, then you're going to be losing games. The Chiefs were a great representation of that because they could not run the ball. Patrick Mahomes ran for the most of anybody on the Chiefs team in that Super Bowl, and you can't have a quarterback run for the most yards on the team yeah. unless it's Lamar Jackson who's taking off for yeah. 120 yards, right? So. I think that we need to start seeing a little bit of more running game representation. If you can get a guy like Tom Brady or just a good game manager that has a good running game behind him, it is so helpful because then they can just slowly control the game, take time off the clock, eat away at defenses, and that'll help a lot. But jumping to some older history, right, jumping back into basketball too, one of my favorite games in the history of sports, the Game 7 of the 2016 Finals. Um, of course, I love talking about this game. I think it was such an exciting game, and it was a legacy game for a lot of players. But the final final couple minutes of that game, there were two great plays, the block by LeBron James and the shot by Kyrie Irving, the three-pointer to kind of get him up when p- people weren't able to score. What do you think is the better play and the more legendary play um, in that the game? Block. Hands
1: down, 100%. You, LeBron closed a. It was at least, I think, a six foot gap, and he had to get up, like at least six inches above that rim, and he smacked that ball away. He was not letting that ball go in. He, boom, he was gone, hand up. He knew what he was doing. It did to me. It did not look like a question of could he make the block, but it was like, it was like he will. Like there was no doubt about it. You saw him turn and he just flew and was, it was just so strong such a powerful play. And that changed the game. It looked like it was like, boom, this, this might put him down a bit. And they, they're, they're probably not going to be able to come back to, like, at that point, two points feels like seven, seven or eight points, right? That late in the game. And he went up there and he said, nope, taking that away. And obviously, Kyrie, beautiful shot. Um, greatly timed, but, man, there's no shot without no block.
0: Right, no, I, I see that point of view completely. I think it was so legendary that LeBron decided to step up in the most important time of the game, sprint down the court faster than anybody else. And I think it's funny to see if you watch that play, a lot of the other players looked like yeah. they were already counting the points in their head. They're like, oh, open layup, Andre Igudala. I mean, last year's finals MVP, super clutch. I'm just going to scroll down there, make an easy layup, and then this is going to kind of put us in a comfortable position to win. And LeBron, at a half court, sees him getting ready to finish, and he says, heck no, he runs up, goes and blocks it. But, I mean, looking at the shot, I think the shot was such a great play, so clutch. Um, I think it's actually often underappreciated because of the LeBron block. But seeing Kyrie Irving go out there, and battle Steph, everybody agrees that Steph was the better player that series, the better player overall and historically. No one's going to argue that. If you do, you're just wrong. But Kyrie decided, you know what? I can make big plays too. I can step up and over Curry. I'm going to drain this shot. I'm going to make the shot of the game in the most important time. So I think both of those plays were incredible. I might have to go with the shot, but, of course, two of my favorite plays of all time – uh, not a Cavaliers fan, but I just thought that it, those were amazing historical things to see in basketball. Super exciting to see. But that was just a quick little fun question I had for you. Um, jumping back to some other news and sports, what do you think about the um, current NBA playoffs that are coming in and the last year's bubble? And how do you think that kind of what we saw from the bubble will compare to
1: this well, year's playoffs? I, like, playoffs are such... It's supposed to be an emotional, uh, momentum-driven kind of season, right? It's not really supposed to be something that is, like, stop-and-go or feels, like, easy or convenient. That's why I feel like travel plays such a big role in the playoffs or in the postseason. When you are flying somewhere, you have so much routine. And that's why I think, like, the bubble – Sure, like these guys have this mind the same mindset when they get to the court, but it just feels different waking up in a hotel room every single night and you're taking a what forty minute drive versus you're getting off the plane and you maybe have an hour bus ride to to the arena right it's It's just such a different vibe, it doesn't really feel like I feel like the sacrifice and the time spent traveling makes it it builds up and – And, like, all comes together to be one big moment that creates moments like Kawhi's shot, LeBron's block, Kyrie's shot, right? All these moments, I think, are culminative of all these factors like travel, sacrifice, the month-long struggle it is to win, getting those 16 wins. I think it's... Supposed to be something that is extremely difficult and powerful, and I think that when we had the bubble, it just didn't really feel the same. It kind of felt like you had lost that touch with the season. It felt like it was totally different, and you felt like the teams that were not in the playoffs maybe deserved to be in them because the, like it didn't even feel like it was the same season. Sure the rosters were the same, but it didn't feel you didn't have that build up, you didn't have that momentum that anticipation right so um i was not a fan of the bubble in any sport um whether it be the nhl did a bubble and i thought that sucked i thought it was but the nhl did a great job at, with like the theatrics and the and they covered the stands and i thought it, it looked really good i really didn't like the nba with all the screens and the in the video fans i thought that was stupid like I thought that was stupid. Like it's not a video game. Like like that's so lame. And I was like Right.
0: No, I I think that it was so funny to see it because when you were watching it on TV, it looked like it was I mean, with the graphics they have in these video games right. these days, it looks like it was a video game, right? Like who who's out here playing NBA 2K, right? There's there's fans in the stands that aren't real fans. It's just little images and stuff. And I mean, they tried to do the most they could do. They they can't have anybody there, and I understand it's super difficult and everything, but it is tough to see when you have such a, such an emotional, like you were saying, um, event. I mean, the playoffs are supposed to be huge, right? Like when a couple years back, when you see Derrick Rose hitting that bank three point shot to, um, to win the game for his team in the playoffs and stuff, and then everyone's jumping on him and grabbing him and stuff. There's just so many emotional moments in basketball that are huge, and they're amplified by the playoffs. That's why when you get a buzzer beater to win the game in the regular season, sure, of course, it's amazing, it's exciting, highlight real play, but then it doesn't have, hold that same influence and emotion as it does in the playoffs because it just means so much to all of these players and all of the teams, and that's what they work for, 82 games in a year, and it's all going out to just win 16 more to make it to the championship. And, of course, 29 teams aren't going to win. And all of those players, these phenomenal players, guys like Dame, who go out there and ball, and they're trying to do as much as they can to carry their team, but they can't get it done. And when you have something like the bubble, it is a little bit different. I'm hoping that this year it might be a little bit uh, more exciting, maybe a little more oomph to it. We're going to have to see. But it's definitely something to to look for going forward to see how they decide to switch it up this year and what kind of adjustments they decide to make. Because last year it just didn't have the same – same feel as it normally does, but there's only so much we can do. Um, but jump into another another solid topic is who do you think are some of or the best um, coach in the NBA yep. right now? I mean, there's a lot of good names, but who do you think is maybe your favorite or the best most well, talent
1: coming from um, from from being in Canada? All the hype is around Nick Nurse, and I really can't stand it because especially on the team. Like the Raptors, it still felt like it was Dwayne Casey's team who obviously went back to Detroit, where he's from now. But, like, it just, like, I I think oftentimes the coach's role is a bit overstated. Like, these are guys who are grown men who have played their entire lives. They know the sport. Almost equally as much as the guy who's coaching them, right? Um, um, I, like, you, like there's very few guys like Doc Rivers and Greg Popovich out there, right? Um, who can have that kind of command over a team. So they, they can, in, they're influencing young players. I feel like it's getting to a point now where we have so many coaches who are just like bench players, like sure. They drop the plays and everything, but for a lot of these guys, it's going to be very similar plays that they've been playing with and running for most of their careers. Like, it's not like they're going to be seeing anything different or crazy. It's there's, there's not much innovation when it comes to play calling these days. So I think it's becoming more of a question of who's the best role model rather than who's the best coach. Because at the end of the day, when you're looking at playoffs, you're going to have guys like Giannis and Luke on the floor, no matter what. And to be honest, those, those five, six guys aren't really going to matter in those moments. Like, you're past like they're like, because regardless, you might pass the ball to them, but if they shoot, man, half the time they miss, right? Those your are five, six players. They're not used to that pressure. And so, I don't know. I, I think that coaching might be overstated. Um, but I think right now, Doc Rivers, because that guy, um, there was a lot of doubt around his name, especially in Los Angeles. People were like questioning his ability and you look at what he what he's doing now, and man, Philadelphia is a force to be reckoned with. Maybe that you call that Joel Embiid woke up or whatever, but I don't know. I think that that proves that this guy is a legend in the sport of basketball, and he knows what he's doing, and he has a good he has that influence that I'm talking about. Not necessarily the decision making or the play calling, but he has that influence and he has that mentality that will win you basketball games.
0: Right. No, I, I love that you mentioned how a lot of coaches and everything now, how it's more about their their them being a role model rather than a strategist and everything. Of course, my favorite coach of all time, Phil Jackson, I think he was one of the great, um, in my opinion, the greatest coach of all time, winning not one, not two, but three um, back-to-back-to-back championships. But I think the thing that made him so great and what makes a lot of current Um, the great current coach is great, is their effect on team morale and chemistry and how they can make decent players play great. Because everybody in the NBA is just unbelievably talented. You got guys that can shoot from so far away, guys that can have amazing dunks, um, unbelievable acrobatic layups, and great passing skills. Everybody in the NBA has an absurd amount of talent. So I think that a coach's biggest role in the NBA is getting these players to mesh well and getting them to play at the best of their ability. Someone who I think that we saw a lot of last year do that was Frank Vogel. I think that he was able to elevate a lot of those players like Dwight Howard, um, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, even Caruso, and they were out going winning the championship. Of course, they had LeBron and Anthony Davis, but they were getting a lot of good contributions from their other players because he was able to lift the team up. And then another one who I think might be um, a little bit, under-mentioned is Eric Spolstra. I mean, he brought the heat to the championship with no superstars. Of course, Jimmy Butler played like a superstar, but no one's going to say Jimmy Butler's in the same league as LeBron, Kawhi. I love how I think in the finals everybody was mentioning, is Jimmy Butler a top eight player? Is he a top ten player? all of that has gone. None of that conversation is still here because it was it was recency bias. Everyone was so excited that he was dropping a triple-double in the finals and beating LeBron a couple games, but no, he had a couple really good games, and I think a biggest part of that is, is Eric Spolstra and him able to um, rally his team to play at such a high level. Of course, I don't think he is the best coach in the league. For best coach in the league, I mean, I'm going to have to say it's probably Frank Vogel. I think Mike Budenholzer, Budenholzer is another great option for that, taking a a Bucks team and making them so well off such great chemistry. But no, like you were mentioning so much of these coaches just comes down to how they affect team morale, team chemistry, how they can get their players to play at the highest level that they're capable of. And I think that that's really exciting to see with some of these coaches. And then when you get other teams that just don't have that, I mean, look at all of the bottom of the tier bottom tier teams in the league, right? It's all because they don't have strong leadership. It just comes down to strong leaderships that can energize the team, give everybody those hype speeches, yeah. make them feel good, and then make them go out and feel like they're going to fight a war, not play a basketball game, right? So that's what it comes down to. And they arise emotion out of you and yeah. everything. So I think that's really big in in the yeah, world you of mentioned, sports, especially for basketball. Uh, sorry, you mentioned Alex
1: Caruso, and that makes me think of – I love watching the transformation of guys who are, aren't necessarily considered top tier, who – they come up and they can play with the big boys, no problem. And that's where I agree with you. The coach does have a big influence, but I love watching guys come from the G league, make that transition. And I love watching them drain their first shot, first shot in the national basketball association. And it, it just feels like a special moment. Like these guys, they've grinded, they've stepped up and they're on the same court as um, the debated greatest of all time. And, They're making shots, and I think I I like watching that more so than I like watching guys who are the headliners score or put on performances. If I can watch some guy who's worked his entire life and maybe spent five years in the G League, underappreciated, undervalued, make his NBA debut or make noise and, and play consistent basketball, come off the bench, be there when they need him, make shots, I think that's something special to watch.
0: It 100% is. I, I think it's really exciting to see these guys that can come out and just show their talent when they don't ever get a shot to show their talent. But uh, jump into a topic that, that might be personal to you, seeing that you're a good old hockey player from Canada, um, something I've been seeing in the news a little bit lately is um, fights in hockey. And a lot of people, there's a big debate whether fights in hockey should be allowed, whether they shouldn't be allowed. Uh, we mentioned a little bit last week about how sports are getting a little softer, if we're going to be honest. Um, and that would kind of go along with that whole topic. But what do you think? Do you think that fights should or shouldn't be allowed in hockey? I know from a fan perspective, from my perspective, I love it. I think that they should totally be allowed in hockey. The few hockey games that I've been to, um, I love seeing when dudes are getting smashed up against the boards and helmets are flying off and everything. I think, what do you
1: think? that you can't disallow. I, I hate it when there's. it feels like there's an overstepping whether it be in government or in sports, I feel like sometimes people need to step back and just let life happen. And whether it be outside or in the arena, I think if a player wants to fight, you, you you let them fight. It's part of the game. It's part of passion. It's part of motivation. It shows that the guys want to be there and they're not just content getting paid and skating around for 60 minutes, right? Um, uh, some Some things that I thought were a bit, much was like last last game I saw um Kyle Clifford he was skating across into the other team's zone during warm up and he was chirping, and it's just kind of like you kind of it's it's this question that we see in all sports, and it's the respect during warm up and the talking, and I don't know, I feel like you you leave that stuff for when the clock's going, the whistle's blown, and your your in game moments right um but as far as it goes when we are fighting and hitting man i i, I love to see it i love to see it. i wouldn't mind to see even things like football like like the the obviously not when someone's grabbing a helmet and whacking mason rudolph's head in like a whack-a-mole i think that's a bit much because that's um that's that's um assault with a deadly weapon <laughs> but um it, as long as it's hand-to-hand combat two guys who are passionate about the same game like let them go at it man in hockey, you see it, respect. Almost every time that someone's in a fight, they pat each other on the chest, shake hands, go to the box. Even if they hate this guy with a passion, they still respect each other at the end of the day. They might go in the box and tell each other that they hate each other's moms. I don't know what they're doing in the box, but they they might be still yelling at each other, turning each other apart. But at the end of the day, after the last punch is thrown, they shake hands, pat each other on the chest, and go on with their day. And athletes have this ability, and I think this is something this is something great about sports, that it teaches young kids, whether you make it to the pros, you make it to college, whatever. Winning and losing is something that needs to be learned. And that's what I think things like hitting, fighting, losing, does for children and youth, is that they learn that life isn't always going to be fair, things aren't always going to go your way, and you got to live with that, make do, and respect everybody around you. And you, make the, you some people make the argument that it's disrespectful to fight. I think it's the complete opposite. The fact that you are going to raise yourself to another man's level and think that you are on his level, it, it, I think it's the ultimate thing of respect. Like, hey, I think that, that, you're, you're, that you're this good that I want to take you down. And I think that fighting, people say that it teaches bad morals. I think it's the complete opposite. It teaches people respect, self-respect for yourself, And your own friends, the same guys wearing the same color jerseys as you, you sacrifice often off the court and on the court, on the ice, on the field, wherever you live with these guys. These are your family now. And you are got to stand up for them just like you should at home, just like you should in the workforce, and anything you're doing. I think fighting is um, an important part, and it's just passion and drive and motivation for the game.
0: Right, and I think that a lot of that goes into the whole conversation of trash-talking these days. I feel like players used to trash-talk a lot more back in the day, right? It's been tamped down a lot nowadays, and I think that if you're able to keep it respectful in terms of not getting into anything serious such as um, race or anything too personal or anything like that, if you're able to just keep it much more surface level, just throw out the general trash talk that anybody can do in backyard football or blacktop basketball or anything like that. I think if you're able to do that, then I I totally welcome it. I think that it was such a big part of the game, getting in people's heads, right? It's a whole mental thing, right? We saw guys like the late Kobe Bryant was able to do it so well. Deion Sanders, he could get receivers to drop passes without even being near them because he'd get in their head. And I think it's a huge part of sports. And I think as long as you can, keep it to where it's not crossing a certain line. I think you can have this kind of stuff in sports and I think it should be welcomed, especially because it, it, I mean, it adds so much more entertainment value. Right. And I, I I just think it's super exciting to see a lot of stuff. So as long as we're able to keep it respectful and at the end of the game go and shake hands, I mean, I know you've been in fights in sports when you were younger. I know throughout all of high school I would get in fights in sports and stuff. But at the end of the game, no matter what happened, I could shake a a guy's hand at the end of the game as we're walking through the line, patting each other on the back and everything. And I might have been a little angry and not been too excited about it, but there was never a time when I took my hand away so I didn't shake someone's hand. I think if you're able to keep it respectful like that, then it should totally be welcomed. And I think that as you start to slowly take parts of the game away, such as fighting and trash talking and everything, uh, it can it can slowly start to change the game for the worse without us even realizing it slowly but surely. And I think that's all we really have time for today. Um, it was awesome talking to you. As always, love going up with these debates with these topics um as for all of our viewers thank you for joining us and i hope you join us next week on xcs sports